Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Titus now is what's known as the third pastoral epistle. We had Timothy, and this Titus is written right around the same time as 1 Timothy. Paul is now at the end of his life. He has sort of divvied up his sons in the faith, his followers as pastors. And of course, later, if they wanted to go and do apostolic ministries, they could, but now they needed to strengthen the churches. And so Timothy, feeling a bit out of his element, because they've been with Paul. I mean, they've been three weeks at this church and six months over here, and, and it's been going and preaching the gospel where it had never been preached before, and it was about evangelism, not really about pastoring. And... Um, so these guys are, are sort of going, man, we know how to do the evangelism thing, the apostolic thing, but you know, to be a pastor, we, we feel a bit out of our element. And of course, this was part of God's design because now Paul is telling Timothy, this young man, and also Titus, here's how the local church is to be ran. Here's your priorities. Here's how you need to choose leadership. Here's what shouldn't be done. Here's what should be done. And of course, without these letters, uh, we would be missing much. And so we're thankful for these pastoral epistles written to these young pastors on how to conduct themselves in the house of God, how to conduct themselves as pastors and how the church is to conduct itself as one body. And so as we study through the book of Acts, we we realize that really the book of Acts for the first section focused on Peter up to chapter 10 and 11, and then starting right around chapter 9, Paul gets converted, but then really in chapter 13, Peter's ministry completely ends in chapter 12, and then in chapter 13 to all the way to chapter 27 of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit has a spotlight on the Apostle Paul and his ministry. So up to chapter 12 is Peter, but then Paul's mixed in a little bit there, chapter 9. And then chapter 13 on is the Apostle Paul's ministry. And we realize as we're reading the epistles that, that really even the book of Acts is the highlights. That there were many places they went to and preached the gospel and churches were started and people were saved. And there's no mention of it in the book of Acts. But it very much happened. And uh, Titus, as we remember, Timothy was pastoring at the church in Ephesus, a coastal town, a a real hub, sort of like San Diego, you know, where um, everything sort of comes through. You know, you have sort of a a potpourri of all kinds of nationalities and people here for all kinds of reasons. Well, that was the church in Ephesus. It was a coastal town. And when the Greeks had conquered the world, the Greek influence was there. And when the Greek empire came to an end, the Greek culture was still very much intact with its colleges and libraries and, and, and that, that philosophy, if you would, of the Greek culture. But then when the Romans took over, the Greek culture stayed there, but now the Roman culture dominated. And so you you begin to have the Roman structure of law and the Roman buildings. And and so you have a real strong Greek 
foundation that didn't get moved in many of the major cities like Ephesus. And then you have the Roman culture there. Well, the same is on this in, in the island of Crete. And we have a map, and I think we're ready to show that map up there. And uh, I didn't bring my red pointy thing again. I can't believe I did this twice. But right in the middle of our picture is the island of Crete. Do you see that? It's southeast of Greece. It's southwest of Asia Minor. It's north of Africa. And we actually do have it mentioned in the book of Acts when Paul had set out from Ephesus as a prisoner going to Rome. He told the captain, he goes, we, we shouldn't go. This is the wintertime. This is the time when boats sink. And you've got to understand that Acts 27 is Paul's fourth ship that sunk. We know from 2 Corinthians 11, before the time of Acts 27, he had three times he said, I've been on a boat that sunk. <laughs> and more than once, I've been a night and a day in the ocean. And then we get to Acts 27, and there's a fourth shipwreck. So Paul was really sensitive to the shipwreck thing. And, and then they, the winds were very contrary. It, they, they made it, though, it sort of in a haphazard way towards, Greece, towards the island of Crete. And Paul told the captain there, you can read in Acts 27, saying, we should just stay here for the winter. It's amazing we made it this far. We shouldn't go any farther. And the, and the captain's like, you're a, you're, a, you're a Jew. You're a prisoner. You're apostle, whatever you are, you're definitely not a captain of a ship. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. And then they left Crete and the ship ship sunk. And you can see a tiny little speck. That's the island of Malta where they crashed uh, some way away. But the island of Crete was, was it was a hedonistic island. It's where all of, through history, all of the Ships would come through and all the guys would get off and they wanted their alcohol and their, pro- their prostitutes and the drugs they had of that day. It was, a, it was a place where, you know, what happens in Crete stays in Crete, you know, type of thing. And in the midst of this hedonism, you also have Christians getting off the boat <laughs> and you have Christians getting together and it's also... Uh, it's not only a place where all the news would come to first from Rome or from Africa or from Asia Minor, but the news of Christ came there. And we don't know exactly who were the first to preach the gospel in Crete, but they definitely had a growing congregation and they definitely needed an A++ pastor. And so Paul had a couple of sons in the faith. One of them was Timothy, the number one son. But right after that, Titus. And so if you would, Paul was giving his jewels, his treasures to these people. And they had no idea what an amazing people these were. And they weren't being respected and appreciated for who they were. And, uh, and so here it was. Um, on the island of Crete, Paul is writing a letter from Rome at the end of his life to his son in the faith, Titus, And we'll see many similarities that we find in 1 Timothy. We'll find in the book of Titus, written about the same time, around 64 to 67 A.D. And we come to verse 1, and it says, Paul. The letters of this day are sort of like the emails of today. You know, when you look at an email, if you have it set up to see the 
sender first. That's normally what I see, you know, so I can see who sent the email. It's interesting we're sort of coming to that again. And then uh, after the, the sender, the person who's writing the letter, then it's the readers are acknowledged. Who, who exactly they want to be the, the target of this letter. And of course, the first target of this letter is Titus himself. But then it's very clear that it's also to be publicly read in the church for the church. That this is not coming just from Titus, but this is coming from the authority of God through the apostle Paul. And then finally, the greetings, those who were with Paul. So to the writer then to the readers, and then the final greetings to others that were there, maybe contributed in the letter, or at least were present while the letter was being written, realizing what, how God was speaking. Now, Paul, his real name was Saul. This was his apostle name, if you would. Now, the thing that would jump out on the page of the people of this day is a Jew who had a Jewish name, Saul, changing to a Gentile name. And if you know how the Jews thought, Orthodox Jews even to this day, is you don't want to be a Gentile. <laughs> the Jews would pray and say, God, thank you, number one, that I am not a Gentile. Thank you, I'm a Jew. Number two, they would say, thank you, I'm not a woman, I'm a man. But that's another story for another time. But that was the first thing on their list, that they were thankful that they were a a Jew. And here Paul, if you would, is casting that aside and saying, call me by a Gentile name. Identify me as a Gentile. We read in the book of Galatians where it really came clear to Paul as he communicated it to Peter and the other apostles that they were upset with him for being not being Jewish enough. And they had already had some real serious conversations in Acts 15. There was some Jews going out to Paul's Gentiles converts trying to proselyte them into Judaism to get them circumcised and following the law of Moses. And, and Paul says, I have no intentions of these guys following any of the law of Moses. I want them to learn it. I want them to know it. But I don't, they're, not, they're not to become Gen- Jews. That's a bondage that was on us that we never could fulfill. And now you're putting it on them. They can't fulfill it. Christ has fulfilled the law. And in Acts 15, Paul had to travel from leave where he was the front lines of him going out to preach the gospel where it had never been preached before, having to go backtrack and take these guys by the ear back to Jerusalem and say, Peter and the gang, chew these guys out because they're out there undermining the grace of God and what God's doing not by the law, but by God's grace. And on many other occasions, Paul had to confront Peter. But in the book of Galatians, Paul makes it clear. Me and Peter came to understanding. Peter has a Jewish ministry. You know, before he became Pope in Rome. That's another story. Um, he never became Pope in Rome, by the way. Um, but Peter had a ministry to the Jews. Therefore, he was to look Jewish, act Jewish, to keep all the the festivals of the Jews and the Passover and all of these things. And, of course, bringing Christ out in the Jewish culture. Paul did not have that conviction. 
Paul had let go of his Jewish roots. He says that I used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees, of the law, perfect. As a Jew, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, a a law, keeping the law above anybody I knew. And all of that killed me. I died. And when I was born again, I was born again a Christian and not a Jew, Jewish Christian, just a Christian. And my ministry is to the Gentiles. And it was just hard for Peter and the other apostles and, and Jews to fathom that, that you could not be a Jew and be a Christian. Paul, it was very clear to him. He received revelation from the Lord. But the other guys very much struggled with it. And many of the people believed Paul was seriously wrong and flawed. We read in Philippians chapter 1 why Paul was in prison. There were people preaching, hoping to do him harm, even while he was in prison, preaching against the, apost- the, the gospel of the apostle Paul. That, that again, uh, it's not just walking by faith in Jesus Christ, but you have to have some flavor of Judaism mixed in with it. And why Paul was in prison, they said, look, God's put Paul in prison to get him out of the way, to keep him from hindering us from bringing Judaism to all these Gentiles. And uh, again, it, it was something that was very clear to the Apostle Paul because it would be the example to the majority of the world that are not Jews, and I am excited about Jewish converts. I think it's wonderful. They call themselves completed Jews. And if you've ever been to a Jewish Christian church, uh, it's neat. But they basically try to follow the synagogue. It's like going to a Jewish synagogue, but they believe in Jesus. And, uh, and it's, it's set up to, for a Jew who leaves his Jewish synagogue to come to this Christian church, and it feels just like a Jewish synagogue. And if you know, understand how the Jewish synagogues work, they have a certain passage of Scripture they read each week, and they have certain prayers that they pray, and a certain liturgy, if you would. And so there's certain Messianic Christian churches that, that uh, they follow that. So if you were at the Jewish synagogue one, one Saturday, and then the, they also meet on Saturday, by the way, and then the next Saturday you would go, and you would say, wow, they, they left off right where my Jewish synagogue left off. But again, they're preaching Christ. And Paul did not have that conviction at all. They were still concentrating on the Old Testament and bringing Christ out of the Old Testament. Paul had a new revelation. He wrote half of the books of the New Testament. And that's what he was concentrating on, was this revelation given to the Apostle Paul. As he said, I was born out of due time. Saul. Saul was the first king. He was a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin. If you know about the tribe of Benjamin, there's really not a lot good to say about it. <laughs> a matter of fact, when the children of Israel, they were mighty warriors. I mean, these guys were the best warrior tribe out of the 12 tribes. They could equally throw a spear or sword fight or 
use uh, slingshots with either left hand or right hand. They were very ambidextrous. It was in the DNA. But when you read the book of Judges, very quickly they became completely corrupted like Sodom and Gomorrah. The tribe of Benjamin became a predominant homosexual tribe. And when the other tribes came to rebuke it, and it's a long story, but they, they brutally raped a woman. They wanted to rape the man, but the, one of the guys of the tribe of Benjamin said, here, take, take his concubine instead. And the whole tribe raped her all night until they raped her to death, literally. And the man the next day cut her up in pieces and sent a piece of her. You know, somebody got a leg and somebody got a head. And, and everybody's outraged at this. So they all showed up and they said, you need to not be outraged with me about cutting up my concubine and sending a piece. Let me tell you what the tribe of Benjamin did. So all the 11 tribes fought against Benjamin and they lost. They lost bad. And then finally they had victory and basically had to wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. There were very few men left. And so all of the other 11 tribes donated men to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. But in time, the tribe of Benjamin sort of became infused with the tribe of Judah. And they basically became one tribe. They were still separate, but not really, because the men were not pure Benjamites anymore. They were from various other tribes. And then, of course, eventually they were from the tribe of Judah. And so there's not a lot good to say about the tribe of Benjamin except for one thing. The first king was King Saul. But if you read about the life of King Saul, there's not a lot of good to say about that either. (laughs) Okay, so, you know, what do you name your son if you're from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. So basically every guy was named Saul. You know, the big king, the the big first guy, the big George Washington, if you would, uh, of of the Jewish lineage of kings. And it was a very prideful thing with them. They were very prideful. I'm Saul. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Paul had some unique advantages. He was from Tarsus, from the area of Asia Minor, known as Turkey today. And his dad was a tent maker and had a very lucrative business. We know at one point in Paul's speeches and acts that he lets it be known that he's a Roman citizen. And they said, how could you become a Roman citizen? My dad bought it. And if you go back in the historical records, it, it, it would be like $10 million today to buy that Roman citizenship. But yet his dad did it not only for, for himself, but for every member of his family. And so Paul was legally a Roman citizen and all of the privileges that came with that. The Romans saw themselves as gods. And so when you became a citizen, you were entitled to the rights of of gods. Everybody else, 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves. There were more slaves than freemen. And you pretty much didn't have much in between. You had slaves and you had Romans. And the Romans enslaved everybody. And there was a few people that could buy themselves out. 
And there was some countries where the slavery wasn't an intense slavery, like in Israel. They didn't have rights, but nevertheless, um, it, was a, it was a brutal, the Roman Empire was a brutal, brutal empire. And to be able to have a Roman citizenship was huge. And so he was from a very wealthy family. And so at a very young age, his dad sent him to Jerusalem to boarding school under the tutelage of a guy by the name of Gamaliel, who was the best teacher there was, period, in the world, if you were a Jew at that time. So the only people that went there were the elite of the elite, you know. There was the high priest's son, and, you know, there was the mayor's son, and, you know, the multimillionaire sons, and that was it. A handful of people that could even consider affording to be a part of the school of Gamaliel. We know an interesting thing about Gamaliel. His focus was not on Jews, but on Gentiles. His focus was on Gentiles being proselyted into Judaism. Remember, Jesus talks about that. He says that you Pharisees are sons of hell. (laughs) And those whom you proselyte, you make twice the sons of hell. So these Gentile converts into Judaism wanted to show their zeal ten times more than the real Jew to prove that even though I'm not, you know, by blood a Jew, by zeal for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm ten times passionate, more passionate than the, than the Jews. And so it was sort of, a, sort of a weird place to be. But that was Paul's whole focus even before he became a Christian. So Gamaliel concentrated on knowing the world and knowing the languages and knowing what they believed in and how to debate their various religions and show their religions to be false and that they needed to believe in Judaism. And that was Gamaliel's claim to fame and that was Paul's tutelage from his young teenage years all the way up until he became an adult and became a Pharisee. He tells us that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. The Pharisee, to be a Pharisee, we do know that you had to be married. They actually taught you could never be a good leader till you have truly suffered. And you have never truly suffered unless you were married. (laughs) Therefore, you must be married and have suffered before you can truly ever lead. This is their thinking. And, of course, I, I horribly disagree with it. Not really, guys. We'll talk on Saturday. But anyway, um, no, I'm kidding. And, uh, but probably when Paul got converted, remember, he was trying to stomp out Christianity. He was getting people arrested and thrown into prison. He was there in the courtroom. Remember the Sanhedrin, the leaders the, the, of, of Israel there at the time uh, of the religious leadership, they had arrested Stephen, and, and Stephen, Paul was right there. The very first Christian martyr, when they, Stephen, his face shone like an angel, and he was preaching, and they were just furious. They said, get him and take him outside. Paul was a part of that mob scene. And as they began to stone him to death, Paul said, I'll be the guy who watches all the jackets. Take off your robes here, and I'll watch them. And so at the feet of Paul, they all 
piled their robes and stoned Stephen to death. And he was there when Stephen, like Jesus on the cross, said, Father, forgive him. They know not what they do. And then he just sort of went to sleep. And it made a great impression on Paul. But from there, he went to Damascus, which is outside the country of Israel. If you go north, um, crossing the line, if you would, to go into Damascus. And he had letters from the Sanhedrin. And again, as a Roman, he would have rights and power. He would be a, a good chosen guy to do this. And on his way to Damascus, to there to get the Christians and bring them back and see them be uh, brought to court and even killed. That's when the Lord stopped Paul. And he made it clear that he has been trying to get Paul's attention for a while. But Paul's heart was very hard. And, and he said, why are you kicking against the goads? Which means in those days you had a, a stick with a, like a nail at the end of it. And when the ox, when you're plowing, you've got to have a straight furrow. But the ox every once in a while just says, I'm tired of this. Ah, I stop. And there's a big giant wood uh, plank on the back of the ox neck that'd be hundreds of pounds to be able to turn the ox. But, you know, you really can't control the strength of that ox. But what they would do is they would put the goad at the heel of the ox. So when the ox starts backing up, it would the nail would go into its hill, which was tender, and it's like, whoa, okay, you are in charge. I'll keep going. And God is saying, I've been having my goad right there, just poking into you, and you still haven't got your attention. And of course, the, the, at the martyrdom death of Stephen, as well as uh, many other places where he had seen Christians and their love and their kindness, and uh, was deeply moved by it, but yet was still fiercely loyal to the Pharisee system and seeing Christianity stomped out. And uh, there Paul heard, as we read three different times in the book of Acts, this testimony. It's sort of, uh, we get more information. There was a light. He himself heard the voice clearly. God speaking to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love that. He didn't say why are you persecuting people, but me. Christ is with us. We're one with him. But everybody else around was stunned by the light, but they didn't hear a voice. They heard a noise, but only Paul heard the voice. And he went into Damascus, but the light blinded him. And he went into Damascus and was there and fasting and praying and saying, who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? And there was a Christian there, Ananias, in Damascus. And he was in prayer, and God said, go and lay hands on Brother Saul. And he's like, the guy that's trying to kill everybody? We hear he had letters to come here to kill us. And he said, go. And there he's arguing with the Lord. And the Lord finally says, I'm telling you, go lay hands on him. And finally, Ananias very reluctantly came in and said, Brother Saul. And he laid hands on him and immediately he was healed. It was like scales fell from his eyes. He began to see. Paul, as often new Christians do, have a lot of zeal. And Paul just started preaching like crazy, but didn't really know what he was preaching there in Damascus and just upset everybody, and they were going to kill him. So they had to let him in a basket over the wall by night, and he had to flee away. We know from his letters that he went three years into the Arabian desert. And far as we know, it was, he was a hermit. He was like 
uh, John the Baptist, just sort of out in the middle of the desert. And during that time, he received direct revelation from the Lord about Jesus. And he says, I'm an apostle, but born out of due time. I mean, if you do the math, Paul was in Jerusalem. Paul was in leadership. The three years that Jesus would have been in Jerusalem, they could have walked by each other on the streets. But nevertheless, Paul wasn't affected by Jesus' ministry. But yet he was there in Jerusalem at the same time, but never was under that listening to what Jesus had to say. And he says, I'm an apostle born out of due time. And, um, and after three years in Arabia, he just went back home to Tarsus, making tents with his dad. And he was there making tents in his dad's business for 11 years. A total of 14 years. Christianity was just growing like wildfire as Paul was just sitting patiently, waiting on the Lord. And there in Antioch near Jerusalem, not too far from Jerusalem, there's many Antiochs uh, as you study the map, but Barnabas was there and the church was growing and, and God had put on his heart to go find this guy Saul and seek him out and bring him back to help be one of the teachers there in Antioch. And he went to Tarsus, found Saul, brought him back, and told everybody, this is Paul. And uh, he there began to become an incredible teacher. And we find in Acts 13, it says a group of teachers and prophets. So Paul at this point is not just called a teacher, but a prophet, got together to pray. And as they prayed, the Holy Spirit said, send out Saul and Barnabas for the ministry that I've called them to. And at that point, they left Antioch and they began their first missionary journey. And in that very next chapter, in Acts 14, Paul's not called a teacher and a prophet. He's there called an apostle. Apostle means, just it's a Greek word. When we don't have, when you're doing translation and you don't have a word in your language. I remember years ago hearing a Wycliffe translator and uh, they, were t- they had to come back to the States for a time, and he left the translating in the hands of the people in the tribe. But they had come to the place where they started talking about sheep. Well, they didn't have sheep, but he, they remember the missionary telling them that the sheep were like how they do their llamas. So every time they came to the word sheep, in the, in the Greek they were translated, in the English, I'm not sure which one, they were translating llama, llama, llama. The Lord is our you know, llama keeper. And of course, the missionary came back and said, no, you can't do that. And they said, well, we don't know what a sheep is. You know, you showed us a picture of it. We have no idea. And he said, well, just write the Greek word then or write the Hebrew word. And so instead of translating, you do what's called transliterating. And the way that's typically done is you take the Greek word in this case and you just say, what's that Greek letter look like, sound like? as close it is to us in the English. Well, uh, that sounds like an, the alpha sounds like an A. Okay, well, then that's an A. And then the P and so forth. And so we actually create a new English word. And so when we come to it and you say, apostle, I've never, I'm, you know, I've been living in an English-speaking country my whole life and I, I've never heard of that word. 
Well, you, you got to learn it. You're a Christian now. You got to learn a little Christianese. And uh, that is a Greek word that was not translated, but transliterated. And it means sent one, or one who becomes an ambassador on behalf of, or a delegate on behalf of another. And so we, we find that Paul became an apostle. Now, the word apostle also has, it's not just somebody who simply goes out, like we have missionaries today, but it's, it's somebody that's uniquely receiving revelation from the Lord. Now, when we come to the end of the Bible, if you read the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, you read the very last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22, you, you clearly see there's a beginning and an end. In other words, it doesn't leave you hanging like, well, there's supposed to be another book in there. This is what we call the canonization of Scripture. And when God canonized the Bible, this is it. The books of the Bible we have, the authors, the writers, this is it. At that point, we believe as Christians that revelation stopped. There can be a spirit of revelation but we wouldn't add it to the Bible, okay? After Revelation is the book of Brian, you know? We wouldn't add that. What we now have is when people get insights from the Revelation, as we call it, illumination. So the apostles were unique in that they did receive, before we had the Bible in our hands, canonized, they did receive direct revelation from our Lord. But we now have all the revelation the Lord's going to give us. Now we have illumination. But there are times where there is a spirit of revelation and it's sort of like illumination on steroids, you know, uh, where God's just really just speaking to us in a unique and powerful way. And uh, so we, we we discover here that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Before that, in Titus 1.1, it says that he's also a bondservant of God. Now, you know, anytime we hear the word servant or slave, we are offended, and rightly so, because our country has a history uh, of even using the Bible to mistreat men and treat them like animals and, and buy and sell them and I mean, monstrous things that that we're still ashamed of to this day. But in the Jewish culture, it, it wasn't that way. In the Jewish culture, as we study through uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15, it was a way in a community to... help somebody, if you would. So, for example, if there was a man in the community that became an alcoholic and he wasn't planting his fields, he was beating his wife, he was mistreating his kids, well, what do you do with that guy? He, he, he owes money, he can't pay it back. Well, the community of the elders of that community, the Jewish elders would get together and they would tell this guy, you can't pay your bills. You're not planning your field. You're mistreating your family. We're forcing you to become a slave. And there was only certain men who were chosen to be slave owners in this community. 
It was very clear if you read Deuteronomy 15. It only lasted for six years. And you actually had to save up the guy's wages. So it wasn't like he he was working for nothing. He would have six years wages. So when he left, he would be a very rich man. It's like, you know, he would be a very wealthy person. He had more than enough money to go back and fix up his house and buy the animals he needed and plant his field and hire the people he needed to get his life back on track. But the slave owner did have the power to do whatever he did to get that man out of the rut he was in. And at that time, he had power over him, over his marriage, over his kids. And here's the thing that we read about the bondservant. It's when the sixth year came and it was time of his release that often the servant wouldn't want to leave. So you can tell right there, it wasn't like the oppressive slavery of the Roman government or the oppressive slavery like we had in our country, okay? And on that sixth year, when it was time for him to leave, he could go to the front porch of the house and, and say, I am not gonna leave. And he would have to say these words, I love my master. And in essence, the guy is saying, I know me. I'll become an alcoholic again. I'll start, you know, I'll be lazy again. I I won't be the person I should be. And I love living here (laughs) in your estate. I love working for you. I don't want it to change. I'm a better person. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. And at that point, he would lean back against the post at the house and the guy would take an owl like you would use in leather work to punch a hole and he would punch a hole in his ear, and he would wear an earring. And in the Jewish community, you actually became a person of honor at that point. Because you weren't a slave for the rest of your life because somebody's making you to be a slave. You're a slave because you chose it. And because you said, I want the best. I want to be the best person I can be. And I know that if I don't have somebody governing me, I won't be the best person I can be. And if you would, the guy was sort of now adopted into that family. (laughs) Not longer as a slave, but as a son uh, within that family. And so Paul says here, I'm a bondservant of God. In other words, I wasn't the person I should be until God took control of my life. And every day I live, I'm accountable to him. I've chosen to permanently be a servant of God. And what did God, my master, do? He sent me out here in Titus 1.1 to be a sent one, an apostle, to preach the gospel where it had never been heard before of Jesus Christ. And then he says some, some important things. According to the faith, of God's elect. Paul is is very emphatic on this, that he did not choose himself to be an apostle, but he was elected by God. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, notice here, through the will of God. In Galatians 1.1, he says it this way, Paul, an apostle, Notice, parentheses, not from men, nor through man, 
but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who has raised him from the dead. He makes it clear that nobody appointed me. I didn't appoint myself. We didn't think this up. We didn't think I had apostolic qualities. It was something purely by the election of God. God elected me. I, I wasn't. He tells us in 1 Timothy he wasn't worthy of it, that God counted him faithful. And then he says, not only is he according to the faith of God's elect, and the word faith can either be a noun or a verb. If a noun, it's describing it. I'm of the Christian faith. It's a noun. Or it could be a verb. We need to have faith in God, put our trust in God. Here it says a noun. According to the faith, the Christian faith, God's elect, and the acknowledgement of truth which accords with godliness. This is such an important statement here. The truth is what he's saying, an acknowledgement of, of the truth which leads to godliness. So Paul right here in these couple of words really sort of sums up what he's going to be saying in the rest of this letter. Because the Cretans were claiming to be Christians, were going to church, listening to the Bible studies, but then they would go out and get drunk and become womanizers and, and not living a holy life. And the point Paul's going to make in Titus is what you believe is an exact mirror of how you live in practice. If you really believe it, you will live that way. If you don't really believe it, it'll show then that you don't live that way. So, you know, we drive down a road and here's a line in the middle of the road. Do we really believe I need to be on the right side of the road? Or do I not believe it? Well, if you don't believe it, you're going to be going back and forth. I've been in countries, those lines mean almost nothing. And all of a sudden, a two-lane road turns into a four-lane road. And the guys on the other side are supposed to have a two-lane road, have barely a one-lane road. It's sort of just happened that way with the traffic flow. It's sort of crazy. And they totally ignore those lines. But if you really believe it, then you'll stay on your side of the line especially when you're going 60 miles an hour. So you really believe it, and it shows in your practice. Okay? In the same way, if you really believe God's a holy God, and he's called us to be holy, and that's the truth, then in practice you will live holy because you have the fear of God. The fear of God is to depart from evil, it says in Proverbs. In 1 Timothy, listen to this. It says in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and equally to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul says here in Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, it's coming to the place where God's Holy Spirit comes in our life and become a born-again Christian, but that's not the end of it. It's the beginning of it. Then right after we come to be born-again believers, confess our sins, we now are in a pursuit of the truth. Jesus in Matthew 28 said, go into the world and make a bunch of church members. Is that what he said? He said, go into the world and make disciples. Another translated, transliterated word. It means 
one who is in the pursuit of learning and growing. Find people that will come to Christ and then grow in the Lord and continue to grow in the Lord. That's their whole aim in life. In John 8, verse 31, it says this, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and equally you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So Jesus again here says, Those who truly are my disciples are people who are abiding in the word, and coming to the truth. And that is the formula to living a life free of our flesh running us. And so it's a fact that the faith in the truth always precedes how you live the life. And so when people are struggling with their marriage... We don't, we don't have psychological counseling here at the church. We have biblical counseling. And typically, you know, let's just say for a successful marriage, there's 10 important things to know. But you know five of them. You know one and three and five and seven and nine. You, that's it. And there's these blanks. And, and so basically your wife's looking at you saying, if you really love me, you'd try harder. And it's like, I'm trying as hard as I can. And it's still broken. Well, if you love me more, you'd try harder. And And, you know, it's really not necessarily an issue of trying harder or being more sincere. It's areas of God's truth you don't know. That once you know the truth and believe the truth and apply that to your life, you'll become the spouse you were to be. In the same way in holiness, you you hear Christians come and say, oh man, I'm just so grieved that I am living in this sin. I'm living in this way and it's, you know, I, I can't seem to overcome it. I guess I'm just doomed to live a life in this sin, in this vice. And it's, no. God has promised us in many places in his word that when we know the truth, we will be free. You simply need to be discipled in the word concerning those issues, whatever it might be, and believe it. And if you will listen to God's word and believe it to be true. And I've, I've had people come and I say, well, you know, you got marriage problems. Let's look at Ephesians 5 here. You know, submit to one another. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You're telling me we're going to look at some Bible verses and all of a sudden our marriage is going to be better. I'm telling you, it's her parents. Well, it's the way she's spending money. It's the way. And it's like, you know what? This is it. You, you want to look at all the limbs out here on the, you know, tree. And I'm telling you, this is the root system. And if you have the root system strong and fertilized and watered, the fruit will be there, <laughs> you know. And you'll just, I've, I 100% believe the word, okay. And we, we saw in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that in the word, as believers, is all we need to be prepared for every good work, lacking nothing, fully complete. In Peter, it says, through the word of God is all that we need for life and godliness. And it's interesting, he puts life first, talking about earth stuff. 
and godliness. A lot of times people are saying, well, you know, the Bible's for when I'm dealing with Christian stuff, and then I've got this other philosophy for real life. And whether they say it or not, that's really what they believe, and it shows in how they live. They're all Mr. Holy here at church, and then when they leave, they're ripping people off in their business because they think that's what they got to do to survive. And of course, Christians looking on and often their own kids are stumbled by it going, you know, how can you know at church God makes it clear we need to be honest, but in the real world, you throw it out. Well, because that's great at church, be honest. But when you're not around church people, you got real life you got to deal with. And in real life, you know, we look at Playboy books. In real life, we cuss. In real life, we cheat in business because that's what you got to do to get by. They don't believe the Bible is good for life and godliness. And so again, it's, it comes to the point where Paul says, I'm, I'm an apostle to bring the faith. And the faith comes to, as he said there, the acknowledgement of the truth. And the truth will bring an accord with godliness. A life like Jesus. So the book of Titus is a hard, small book, but a hard-hitting book. And I, I would dare say that we will all be convicted and blessed by the sharp, two-edged sword of the book of Titus. Well, let's pray here tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. And we do ask in Jesus' name tonight that as we can begin to think and contemplate on these things that you, you would, Lord, Just search our hearts right now and ask, are we really walking by faith in your word? Do we really believe your word is what it says it is? And it's true. And that if we listen to your word and truly believe 100% that it is true, that we will be set free. As we're here tonight and just quiet for a moment, he said, all my disciples are in the word. Are you in the word? All my disciples come to the truth of the word. Do you believe God's word is infallible? Do you believe it is God's completed revelation lacking nothing for us, for life and godliness? That the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If not, repent. (laughs) And say, God, you know, consciously or subconsciously I I really have believed that it's not a completed book I really have believed it's an ancient book that really doesn't deal with all the issues that we have to deal with today but Lord we we come tonight to the realization that the book of Revelation is talking about the last days that your, your book is, is good from the beginning of creation to seeing us in heaven with you. And everything in between, you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. And we ask, Lord, tonight that we would truly become disciples if we're not. And if we are, Lord, just to continue to not grow weary in well-doing, we will reap if we faint not. And we just lay our lives at your feet in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen, amen. Hey, guys, again tonight, you don't have to run out, sprint out. You could talk to somebody next to you. 
And tell him what the Lord spoke to you tonight and find out how you can pray for him uh, tonight. Say, hey, how can I, what can I pray for you for? And of course, if you don't have anything, just pray for me. I need all your prayers, time 10. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. Bye-bye.